October 6, 2013, lecture discussion number 126 on the Book of Romans. And uh, Janet from Oklahoma, I read your letter, uh, so we found it delightful. I'll tell you uh, Dave's name later, but he does say to me that he put it on the Internet, so you can find it there. Um, uh, Well, we are currently working our way through Psalm chapter 22. We've gotten pretty far so far. Uh That's funny. Think about that a second. Uh, Oh, I should tell you, my son-in-law talked to me from uh, Osan, Korea. And the one thing he said, he said, your jokes are hilarious. And I said, I I know. He says, does anybody get them? I said, said, no. He said, but I get them. And I said, that's fantastic. So you're the one, essentially. But uh, anyway. We've gotten a, a, a long way. Not really. We got all the way to verse 6, um, I think. But actually, though, we've sifted uh, through quite a, a bit of information, enough to at least uh, know and recognize that we're at the beginnings. We've got the beginnings. Uh, what I mean by beginnings is that uh, those are the things that form the foundation of Psalm 22. So whenever you're dealing with why Christ says Psalm 22 from the cross is the fourth saying, uh, the, what we've covered so far helps you solve that. And we're going to get into it in a little bit more detail today. Go back over and, and glean. For example, the title of Psalm 22 is The Hind of the Morning. You have to know that. If you do not know that this is something that is titled and the title explains what is being there, what is there, it certainly explains the very first verse and it explains why Christ said Psalm 22, 1 from the cross is the fourth saying to repeat that. So knowing that the title of the psalm, the hind of the morning, is one of the beginnings or one of the foundations to understanding it. And then knowing that Psalm 22, 1 is a complaint. And as soon as I understand that it's a complaint, what should I do? I figured out that it is a complaint. Let's just say that you did that. You went through the process. You noticed that it's a complaint. And you've noticed that there are three accusations in this complaint in Psalm 22.1. And they are, why have you forsaken me or abandoned me, left me alone? Why won't you help me? And why won't you listen to me? All three of those complaints are implications that God has done what? He's failed. He's failed to keep his promises in some form. So what do you do now? You go around through the Old Testament or the New Testament or both, and what do you find? All the other complaints. And you find out who's complaining. That helps you solve Psalm 22. One. We'll get to that in a minute. Exodus 16, 7, and 8, uh, probably the best place to begin finding complaints. Now, all three Psalm 22 complaints assert that God cannot be trusted. That's the implication of Psalm 22.1, that God cannot be trusted in times of crisis. More specifically, at the time of our death, he cannot be trusted. Okay? And that is what's happening at 22.1. That's... the. And, and to say, let me add this really fast, it's kind of off the, off the table here. Once you recognize there's a complaint and that God can't be trusted at your time of death or at the time of death of the person who is saying that, hind of the morning in this case, all you have to do is look further on in Psalm 22 and you see the contrast to that, the fathers who trusted and were found not ashamed. So immediately I have this contrast. We'll get into that again in a second. 
But, but once you discover that Psalm 22.1, or once you know that it is an accusation against the goodness of God, then it is beyond obvious, I hope for you, that Jesus Christ, when he quotes it from the cross, his fourth saying in a deafening voice, he is not referencing himself. He would never do that. He would never scream out, if you will, my God, my God, why are you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? And reference himself. He would never complain against the character or the goodness of God. It makes no sense that he would. Again, go find the other complaint passages in the Old Testament. Round them all up and find out who does do that. It's absurd to say that Christ did it, because essentially you're in this situation now. You could rephrase it. Myself, myself, why have I forsaken myself? Or if you prefer, triune Godhead, triune Godhead, why have we abandoned we? See, it's ludicrous. But yet it's what? The most common taught position on Psalm 22. As indefensible and as ridiculous as it is. The omnipotent God in the flesh, which is Jesus Christ, does not require help. He does not cry for help. It is impossible to do something for him. What is it impossible to do? He's omnipotent. What is impossible? It's impossible to help omnipotence. You can't help him. No one can help him. You cannot. Define omnipotence in your head. What's it mean? He is all-powerful. He has all the power. How much power do we have? We can't help him. He knows that about himself. So to repeat, why then did Jesus Christ yell out this verse? If it is not referencing him, and it is not, and then therefore, to whom was it directed, and to whom did it reference? Okay? The answer to that last one is clear. It references the title of the psalm, or the song. It references the hind of the morning. But now, where, where, where are we at now? We now have to identify who is then the hind of the morning. And then the immediate subsequent question, who are the ones that are killing the hind of the morning? And that's the essence of the mystery of Psalm 22, solving the identities of the hind of the morning and the predators who are pursuing the hind. Okay? Trying to sum up uh, the last couple of weeks for you, especially for those who might have missed it. And you will find this contrasting of these two uh, things, if you will, these pairs all throughout Psalm 22. The hind of the morning complains against God, and that is contrasted immediately with the trusting fathers who are found not ashamed at their time of death. One is complaining against God at, at, at his time or her time or its time of death, saying that God will not intervene, God will not save them, God is cannot be trusted at the time of death, and then immediately after that we have the fathers, the trusting fathers, who are found not ashamed for trusting God that he will. So that contrast is there. You have the crimson worm that comes up in 22.6, and that is contrasted with the poisonous plant. So another pair, another contrast. Who is the worm? Who is the 
a poisonous plant. And then you have, as you go through Psalm 22, the congregation of the wicked and the brethren of the assembly. Contrast it to give the most obvious pairs of Psalm 22. So you'll see this pairing, uh, the, the one against the other, if you will, all throughout the Psalm, uh, all throughout chapter 22. And so it becomes necessary to correctly establish then what? Who's who? Who's represented by what group or symbol? Some of that we've done. Jesus Christ is the scarlet worm. Talked about that last week. The scarlet worm of Jonah. That's who he is. That's what that word means in there. It should have been translated scarlet or crimson worm, and we'd immediately know it's a Job reference. I'm sorry, a Jonah reference, as well as a Job and an Isaiah. Jesus Christ is the scarlet worm. So what? What happens next? What do you got to answer? Who is the poisonous gourd? The hind of the morning accuses God of despising the hind at the time of its death. Essentially, the questions are, why do you hate me? All of them. And God's response is in 22:24, For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Hebrews 13:5, As well as there. Deuteronomy 31, 6. The Romans are the ones who divide the garments. See, I'm identifying people, aren't I? The Romans divide the garments and cast lots. What's the obvious question? Why? That's in the Scriptures. It's in Psalm 22. It's in Matthew 27. It's in John 19. Why? Talk about that in a minute. Who are the dogs that surround and enclose the hind of the morning? Why did they enclose? What's their motive? And and once you start to work your way through it that way, you're on your way to solving and answering all of those. And admittedly, it's a slow process as usual, as you should know. However, if you start with the right questions, you will always reap great rewards. I was talking to a gentleman that called yesterday, Jeff, uh, from Places Unknown. He was uh, wonderful to talk to. And and, um, and uh, I just told Jeff, uh, essentially, uh, that which David uh, from Nebraska uh, said about me, which I'll, I hope is on my tombstone. I put the most honorable position of Christ I could on the paper every Sunday. And I thought it was the most defensible. That's all I can do. If you go that way, if that's how you start, if you begin with the premise that Jesus Christ is the Lord God Almighty, creator of all things, and he says he is over and over and over and over again, and that he's omnipotent God, omniscient God, John 1.3, Revelation 1.8, if you, if you start with the premise that that's who he is and get rid of this stuff that he's weeping and crying for himself and afraid of his own death, blah, 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 by my book, get rid of that nonsense and other such drivel, then Psalm 22, and all of the Bible for that matter, is going to yield up great treasure to you. So if you have garbage in, in other words, if you've destroyed the deity of Christ before you've even begun to read the passage, then you'll get garbage out. It is always the case. Okay, so that was kind of our review. And now uh, let's uh, go to Psalm 22 and see if we can figure out some of these mysteries that are here. There are verses in Psalm 22 that can definitely and properly be assigned to Jesus Christ. Things that he said 
And that's without controversy, no dispute. That's Psalm 22, 6 through 7, and Psalm 22, 18. So let's read 22, 6 through 7 again. This is something <coughs> that Jesus Christ said. This is referencing him. So far, no part of Psalm 22 has been uttered by Christ until we get to verse 6. And this is Hebrew double reference, as you know. But I, the worm, and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people, all those, everybody who sees me, ridicules me, when he is the worm. Context is, is he's the worm, and when he's the worm, everyone who sees him are ridiculing him. They, they shoot out the lip and shake the head. That They're sneering at him, saying, he trusted in the Lord, let him save him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Which, as you know, is word for word what was said at the base of the cross during the crucifixion by the people of Israel, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the elders, the politicians, the, the priesthood, and the people of Israel themselves, and the Romans, and the two thieves. They all said those exact words. They chanted them. Uh, that was in a previous lecture. Please, those of you who follow by the Internet, go back and find those lectures. So, that 6 and 7 and 8 Things that uh, are six and seven things that Christ said. Eight is something that the Pharisees said. And now, 22:18. They, I'm going to actually start at half of 17. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's something that Christ said. So there we have identified six and seven, part of 17, and all of 18 things that Jesus Christ said without dispute. No one disputes it. Um, Christ is the worm of Jonah. No one but him could be the worm of Jonah. No one but him would be the worm of Jonah. The worm that attaches to wood and gives its blood for its children. And Christ is the one that is despised. What's the obvious question? Why? Who? Who despises him and why do they despise him? And there's a, a great irony here. You see, iron, iron, uh, it's the medicine that I need now. It's ironic that a made creature, that's us, we are wholly, completely, and totally dependent upon our Creator to provide us with the essence of life and to sustain it. Uh, and nonetheless, the, the created creature hates and hates with all of his being the very creator that gives him existence and sustains his existence. How do you explain that? The made ones despise the, the maker or the unmade one. And so you have the century-old question, why does, and you see it today, I mean, in this country, the hatred for Christ is, is pegging the needle. Why do they hate, why does mankind so hate his creator God? That's the century old question. You would not think that would be the case. You would think the created beings would be what? Grateful. Not the case. 
filled to the brim with hate. Watch TV. Why does mankind attempt, and and we will, mankind will do it, why do we attempt to kill I'm not talking about the saved mankind, the unsaved mankind. Why does mankind attempt to kill the only one that is the source of all life? Think about how foolish that is. I am going to kill the one that supplies me with what? My life. What is that? Suicidal insanity. That is what will happen and has happened in the past. Mankind cannot and could not exist without God providing the existence, yet mankind does not hesitate to seek out the death of God and attempt to kill God and will do so. And again, what causes this? If I ceded or granted the hypothetical, if it were possible and it is not possible, but by the way, man is convinced that it is possible. When I was a young man in the 70s, as I've said many times, the big chant came out of the philosophers that God was dead. God, somebody had killed God or he had died of natural, of natural causes. It was everywhere, still everywhere. If it were possible, and it is not possible, but again, I'll grant or I'll see the hypothetical, the death of God would result in what? The extermination of everyone, of everything. So those who, who yearn for the death of God are yearning ultimately for their own destruction. But they are so, what's the word I want? Stupid. Yes, they are so stupid that they think somehow God can die and they can continue living. You cannot be more stupid than that. It is impossible. That is perfect, total, complete, absolute stupidity. And that is the condition of the humans on this planet today, overwhelmingly. So, back to where we are. Christ is the one. He says he is the worm of Jonah, and he is despised, and he is ridiculed, and uh, sneered at, and mocked. And who is he again? The Lord God Almighty, creator of all things, the I Am, the Ancient of Days. The Word made flesh. That's who he is, and he's being ridiculed. What's the obvious question? Why? Who's doing it? What's their motive? Why does the created, the creatures, why do the creatures mock continually, unceasingly, the Creator? If you don't think the creatures mock God, go back to where we were a few minutes ago and watch any television show. It is constant, unceasing mocking of God. Never stop. Ridiculing God. Why does man sneer at God? I used to have a friend that worked with me for many years. He would, he would cry out all the time when he was confronted with just horror that mankind does. Where is the fear of God? Why isn't there any fear of God? Okay? Now. Now we'll go back to uh, Psalm 22, 16 through 17. Make sure, yeah. Let's read this. For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count on all my bones. Notice I put 
they look and stare at me with verse 18. By the way, so you know, the verse numbers and the chapter numbers are not what? Inspired. They're there to help people. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they make you think that this starts and stops here. Sometimes it doesn't. So you have to be aware of that. Now, there is a dispute with this. They pierced my hands and my feet like a lion. Did you hear what I said? I'll do it again. They pierced my hands and my feet. Your verse may have, or your translation may have, like a lion. How many of you have like a lion after they pierced my hands and my feet? Is anybody? Write it in. Like a lion. Some of you, if you have a a commentary, uh, it'll tell you that the the Hebrew text literally reads like a, a lion. And that's where the dispute and the discussion uh, starts to occur. The word translated pierced has difficulties. Some commentators have concluded that 2216 cannot be correctly or intelligibly translated from the Hebrew to English. Very much like they will say to you about the hind of the morning uh, title. Again, you will get the solution through the context. Pay attention to the context. Okay? Does uh, like a lion fit here? I will submit to you that it does. So that you could read it this way. They tore my hands and feet off or apart like a lion would. That would be uh, probably the strongest um, uh, defendable translation of that verse. Certainly the context along with verse 14 uh, and uh, with verse 17 reflects the tearing apart of a prey or a victim, if you will, by predator animals that have chased the prey to exhaustion. That is who the hind of the morning is. The hind of the morning is the prey being chased to exhaustion and tore apart. The hind of the morning is being eaten alive. That is what Psalm 22 is depicting. The eating alive of the hind of the morning. His last words, as I said last week, the last words of the hind of the morning are recorded. They are Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the last words of a a person or a creature, if you will, if you want to analogize it with with an animal. That, That is the last thoughts, the last statements of this person that has been destroyed or being destroyed by a predator pack that is eating him or her, or it, if you will, alive. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me at my time of death? Why did you not help me escape? Why don't you hear my cries? Now, notice uh, verse 15. Psalm 22:15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. How many of you have the me... Uh, And the same thing with 14. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. How many of you have the me capitalized? How many do not have the me capitalized? Yeah, that's pretty cool. 
Ask the obvious question about 14 and 15. Well, we'll just take 15. My strength is dried up. Who's that talking about? You have choices. You could be talking about the hind of the morning. It can be talking about David. It could be talking about the nation of Israel. Or it can be talking about Jesus Christ. My strength is dried up. Who does it not reference? Obviously. It can't reference the omnipotent Lord God Almighty. Can't, can't, it just can't. It doesn't apply to Christ. It can't. It's ever. Ask it in another, another form. Can omnipotence be dried up? Can it be lost? Can he run out of omnipotence? Oh no, I'm tired. I'm out of omnipotence. Clearly that's absurd again. And so the me cannot be there. Capitalized. Can God lose power? No, all powerful by definition is outside of time. It's forever. Forever all powerful. God is always careful to refer to himself as forever. It's not an accident. All throughout scripture, he calls himself forever because forever is an attribute that requires omnipotence. Omnipotence is a characteristic. I'm sorry, forever. Uh, yes, I'm sorry. I put it, I had it right. Omnipotence is a characteristic of forever. Once you're forever, you have omnipotence. I'll put it another way. How much power does it take to be forever? Can your battery run out if you're forever? Will it ever drain? If you prefer, how much power is required to remain forever? And then again, Psalm 22:14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has melted like wax. My strength is dried up. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. None of that can be said about Jesus Christ. He can't run out of power. He can't be exhausted. Can I make omnipotence tired? Now, I know Christ slept. While he was sleeping, was he unaware of things? See, him sleeping is a very important thing. He's on a boat, right? And they don't want to wake him, and they're going to sink. Were they in any danger of sinking? No. How come? That's omniscient, omnipotent God there. I've done things on Christ sleeping and why that particular lesson is there. None of that poured out like water, bones out of joint, heart melted like wax, strength dried up and gone. I have no strength. Is there ever a time when Christ has no strength? Of course not. You have brought me to the dust of death. That can't be said of Christ. What do we know about him? He went to death. How? Did anybody bring him? No. He goes to death willingly. His body did not go into corruption. He blew out his life with his will. I take my life, right? He says, I can lay my life down. I can take it up again. What does he say in that same verse? No one can kill me. 
The dogs are eating somebody alive. They have torn open uh, somebody. They've ripped open the chest. They have tore off the hands and the feet like a lion. Can you tear an omnipotent God apart? No. So clearly those verses do not apply to Christ. Now you're going to hear that they do. Keep in mind, however, about the Passover lamb uh, typology. What do we know about the Passover lamb? One of the typological things there is that that lamb's bones cannot be what? Can't be broken. Don't break them. One of the great prophecies of Christ that his bones are not broken. If I tear your hands and feet off and rip open and eat your chest, how am I doing with your bones? It cannot be him. Why doesn't he want his bones broken? Because he doesn't want it. And if he doesn't want it, it isn't going to happen. Why is that bone broken thing in the Bible? We'll get to that next week. So let me sum up all these verses that I just went through. The hind of the morning is run into the ground, chased by animals who are relentless, vicious, brutal. The hind is now bleeding because it's been caught and escaped, caught and escaped, and it's running, but it's crippled, and it's wounded. The heart, finally, of the hind does what? Collapses. Melts like wax. So the hind is exhausted. The heart essentially bursts and collapses. All its strength is now gone. It is now quickly overcome. It is now underneath the weight of the pursuing pack. And it is being eaten alive. That is what Psalm 22 is talking about. That's the reference. And it's watching itself being eaten alive as it is dying. It is watching the feeding frenzy. And the last words are 22.1. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Now, it should be noted before we move forward. To the, those are the easy verses. And I covered them really fast. Now we're going to get into the really difficult ones. Uh, by very difficult, I mean um, we're going we're to figure out who the they's are of 22, 17, and 18. Mine has three they's. Uh, Old King James only has two. Um, they look and stare at me. They divide my garment. They cast lots. We've got to figure out who the they's are. That's not so tough. But what's tough is, is the explaining of the meaning of all of that, the dividing of the garments and the casting of locks. Anyway, before we get to that, the tough ones, uh, you, you, first it's necessary to realize that many, if not most, victims of Roman crucifixions were in fact eaten by animals. Not just the Romans, this is a common practice. Um, um, many civilizations, so-called civilizations, have destroyed people with this method of uh, execution. It's happened, um, <coughs> what well, certainly happened during World War II. But birds were the primary eaters of the crucified because they were tied off, nailed off, if you will. And as soon as that happened, um, as soon as they were put up in the air and the birds could see them, and by the way, the birds got onto the system pretty fast. 
realize that the birds are... We feed the stellar jays at my house, Lori and I. They come to my window and peck at the window now in the morning. They know, and they know who I am. And when I get up, they fly down to where I'm going to come with the peanuts. They love peanuts. And they, if I don't go down the stairs, they fly into the entryway window and they peck at that looking for me. And then as soon as I come downstairs, they go and they're waiting. And there can be 15 of them. So, birds are uh, very, very observant. How many crucifixions have they watched? Lots, thousands and thousands. And they know when that stick goes up in the air, that's their time. And they got to hurry. How come? Because they got competition. And so those birds descend on that helpless man that is tied to that cross in a flock. And what is the first thing they do? They take the eyes. First thing they do. That's how it works. It's gone on thousands of times, hundreds of years. So I want you to imagine the flocks of birds that were there. But it was equally common for large predators to come and rip pieces off. They'd jump up and grab pieces. And retreat into the darkness or whatever. And so the birds were in a hurry. And sometimes the Romans fought off the animals, but sometimes not. The Romans uh, uh, were cruel, no question about it. But they uh, also uh, got by with the least amount of effort sometimes. The Romans posted, or mainly posted, guards to prevent something. I didn't post them to prevent the birds, though that might have occurred and certainly might have stopped some animals. But they mostly uh, uh, posted guards uh, to uh, prevent uh, rescue attempts by, by friends or family or other terrorists, because that's pretty much what was going on. I had Jewish men uh, organized trying to kill Roman soldiers and Roman soldiers uh, delighted every time they caught uh, a Jewish uh, a rebellion uh, soldier. So anyway, um, the evidence is is that these two men that were crucified with Christ were in fact part of the Jewish resistance. <coughs> so animal scavenging was part of the process. It wasn't something the Roman executioners particularly concerned themselves with unless they were invested by that, I mean, if they wanted to assure that the person being crucified lived for as long as possible, then they didn't chase off the animals. I mean, they did chase off the animals. Sorry, I got that wrong. And they chased off the birds. If they wanted that person uh, to live for a long time, then they were particularly attentive. And that, that was reserved for those who killed Romans. They made sure you kill a Roman, you had the most horrible Horrible death imaginable. If you were just a murderer of another Jew, well then, we'll let the animals eat you. Not that big a deal. We've got to get home back on the job. All of that to point out the last words. I, when, once you recognize what's going on, you think of the last words that, of the people that went through this, that were killed this way, this gruesome death. They couldn't cry out to God, why not? Well, one, they're in a flock of birds. Two, uh, 
just don't open your mouth. You got to be really careful here. You got problems, and and it was a suffocation death. So you had to conserve your energy and your breath. So they, you could cry out for a little while. Some could. And there's obviously the two thieves had a conversations. They, they reviled and mocked Christ. So some of that goes on, but it doesn't last long. Eventually your breathing is so degraded that audible sounds were impossible. And remember the thief says this. We, talking to the other thief, we deserve this. What did those guys do? We deserve it. He doesn't deserve it. We do. What we did deserves this death. That's an amazing uh, understanding that he has. Also remember that Jesus Christ shouts out in a deafening voice. The Bible says loud. And when it says loud, it means loud. That was an unbelievable occurrence for the Romans, unprecedented, never happened before. And I submit that no birds came. I'm, I'm going to tell you that this crucifixion was so unusual. There's Christ. Put him up. Birds don't come. They don't come for him. I don't think necessarily they came for the thieves. I think I have evidence of that I'll get to next week by what the Pharisees wanted them to do. This isn't going well. We got problems here. These guys are talking to each other. One of them is screaming out in a loud voice. How are we going to handle this? This never happened before. I don't think animals came, and I certainly don't think the birds came. So now, Let's reread Psalm 22:17. I, they look at me and stare at me. Christ said that, or that is assigned to him correctly. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We're going to go to John 19:23 and 24, which explains that better. Keep in mind that Matthew explicitly states that Psalm 22:18 is a prophecy. That Christ fulfills. Matthew 27:35, A prophecy that then must be explained. If it's a prophecy, what's the obvious question? What's it, what's it mean? How was it fulfilled? Why is it a prophecy? It just seems like a description of the event. But it's not. Prophecies teach things. What's the lesson of this? Again, as I said, crucifixions. What exactly is fulfilled by Christ in this prophecy? Crucifixions are common. Let me read it again. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and my clothing. They cast lots. How many crucifixions have I had? Thousands and thousands. Maybe tens and tens of thousands. Common. What did Roman soldiers always do in a crucifixion? They stripped the clothes. Why did they strip the clothes? They wanted to make them vulnerable to who? 
the animals, the birds. Strip the clothes. So every time they killed somebody, the Romans got some clothes. What did they do with the clothes? Every time. Thousands and thousands of times. What did they do? I'm going to say to you that they always stripped the victims and they always divided up the garments. Every time. It's a little, call it spending money. And every single time it would be natural to assume they cast lots for the most precious possession of the executed. They did it every time. So how is this a prophecy that's fulfilled by Christ? This is a prophecy fulfilled by everybody. But Matthew says, no, this is a prophecy fulfilled by Christ. What made it so unusual? And granted, I'll give you that David wrote this prior to the Roman Empire, but again, suspending victims for suffocation and animal scavenging has, has this death by suffocation and animal scavenging has been recorded throughout history. The Nazis did it. They did it by the hundreds of thousands. Suspended them to suffocate. Uh, they would have, they coated their victims with grease. To attract the animals. And they strip their clothes. You can figure out why they were doing what they were doing, I'm sure. Now, obviously, something very unusual happened at Christ's crucifixion. Besides the fact that he was not in any way exhausted or having breathing difficulties. He's singing in a very loud voice, on pitch. He's not having a problem. Birds aren't coming. Animals aren't coming. This is different. It's important that you approach it with the understanding that this is God. It is not the same as any other crucifixion. His birth was absolutely unique. His life absolutely unique. His death, his crucifixion, there was no crucifixion like it, no death by suffocation and suspension like it, and there is no resurrection like his. What's so different about his resurrection versus our resurrection? He resurrects himself. You try. Good luck with that. Something very unusual happened at the crucifixion of Christ. Something that only happened this one time and was never repeated. So ask the obvious questions. Let's read it again. They look and stare at me. What's the obvious question there? Why? What's different about him? He looks different. When did they look and stare at him? Why did the Romans stare at Jesus Christ? They divide my garments among them. Why is that so important? Because that's important. They've been dividing garments every single crucifixion. But this time it's different. What's different? And for my clothing, they cast lots. That's different from all the other times they've done it. This time it's different. This time it's really incredible. When the Romans stared at Jesus Christ, they saw something that they'd never seen before. 
And again, if we concede that division of the possessions was common, every one of your Bibles will say that, by the way. Every one of them. This is a common thing the Romans did. Look at the commentary. No, it wasn't. Not this time. This time it was different. But if we could see that it was taking the possessions, what is the meaning of, what is the real meaning of they divide my garments and for my clothing they cast lots? Jesus Christ has chosen and allowed himself to be raised up in the mist. By the way, back you go to Genesis 1-6. It's for the internet people. He is in a state of nakedness. The first Adam, as you, if you remember, was stripped of a covering and then, re- and then recovered, if you will, by blood. Jesus Christ has allowed his covering to be stripped off of him. That's amazing. And then he has allowed his covering to be what? The last Adam, God himself, allows his garments to be removed and is exposed for the multitude and the Romans to see his nakedness and they stare at him. Because why? They see something they've never seen before. Why is Jesus Christ doing this? And why are the Romans looking and staring? This is Zechariah 12.10, by the way. John 19.37. As usual, the garments are divided, but one piece is so valuable they gamble for it. I, I submit that they gambled for the most valuable every single time. Not everything was equally divisible among all the executioners. So they, that was their way of doing it, whether it be a belt or a hat. Let's go read John 19.23. Maybe that will help you. How am I doing on time, Terry? I'd like to fit. How many? Okay. Plenty of time. (laughs) Uh, 19.23. After Pilate puts a sign on him, essentially, that says, The King of the Jews... Uh, And wouldn't remove it. Verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier a part. And also the tunic. Now, the tunic was without seam, woven from top in one piece, from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be? That the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's Psalm 22, right? Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now let's go over to 1934. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you might believe. Why is that in there? What's he trying to say to us? Let me repeat it. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen this testified... 
he's telling the truth, and he knows he's telling the truth, so that you can believe what he said to you. By the way, how many times you stick a spear in a guy who's been crucified? Probably pretty common. Get it over with. Birds got everything. Cats have got what's left. Stick a spear in him. What comes out? How much blood comes out? How much water comes out? We have to solve that, don't we? But let's keep going here. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. That tells you right there, that's the Passover prophecy, the lamb, the Passover lamb. You don't break the bones. 37. And then, and again, another Scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Okay, that is Zechariah 12.10. Not Psalm 22. Psalm 22 has pierced like a lion. This is, they shall look at him whom they pierced. In other words, when that soldier pierced him with that sword, he went, oh my, and they all stared. Something happened when the piercing occurred that made them all stare. That's when they stare at him, the Romans. So far, still with me? So there is one of our answers. They look at Christ after they spear him in the side. They see something that none of them have executed thousands of people, and now they see something that no one has ever seen before. As Adam's side, the first Adam was opened by God, God allows the Romans to open his own side. The last Adam... Christ wants this connection to the first Adam to be established, and he uses the Roman soldiers. And remember, they're the ones, he says, Father, forgive them. That's really good news, because they don't know what they're doing, so they're forgiven. And he has these Roman soldiers participate in his plan. Their job is to spear him and stare at him. And they see something that no one can even imagine, especially the guy with the spear, but one of the soldiers spears his side with a spear. What do I want to know? I don't know who that is. I want to talk to him. He saw something unbelievable. And they're shocked when they see it. Now I ask the obvious questions. Now I know you've heard all kinds of stuff about this. What's the first obvious question? How much blood came out? What's the next obvious question? How much water came out? Ask another easy question. Get the easy questions on. What did the blood look like? What's the next question you want to ask? What did the water look like? How about another one? How did they know the difference between the blood and the water? How could I go, that's blood, that's water? Or did they mean, it looked like blood and water? By the way, how much water is in your blood? What percentage? People tell me all the time, you're drinking Coke, Coke, really bad. Diet Coke, bad. Uh, you should drink water. I have a machine now that makes soda. 
You know what you do with the machine? You fill it full of what? Water. And this is 99.9999999732% water. There's a little tiny bit of food coloring and something else. I know. I'm the chemist now at my house. I make it every day. I make it for really cheap. It doesn't taste as good as the aluminum can soda. But it's cheap. Anyway. How did they know? What is the difference between blood and water? Uh, Let me go this way. What did the blood look like? What did the water look like? How could they tell the difference? What happened when the... What kind of blood is this? Whose blood is this again? Christ's blood. Is it dead? Can it be killed? What is the status of the blood? Now, the spirit is gone. What about the body? What happens to the body? Does the body go into decay? No, Bible's explicit, does not go to corruption. But somehow God allows this soldier with his little spear to push it in there somehow. Because that's amazing, just like nailing him off is amazing. You're talking about omnipotence here. What happens when the lifeblood and the living water came out? What do I want to know now? Where did it go? What's my first place I think it might have went? If it's subject to gravity, I know that's going to sound strange, but I get that question all the time. I'm going to assume that it is subject to gravity because he seems to want to do that. But he can't. He can stop it anytime he wants. He's not subject to the physical reality. But let's assume, for the fun of it, I guess, the water fell down towards the ground. Who's between the ground and the water and the blood? The guy with a spear. What is the chances that the living water and the life blood that came out of the Lord God Almighty that is fell on top of touched the soldier with a spear? What happened to him? It's an extraordinary event, and it's filled with meaning. Christ likes to do things. Who do you think of, by the way? Is there any place else in the Bible where a soldier touches the bones of a great prophet, Elisha, and it's a dead soldier, and what happens to that soldier? He resurrects instantly. Here is the New Testament complement of the dead body of Elisha and the dead soldier coming together. I have a soldier, and he is now hit with the blood and the water of God himself. Living water, living blood. What happened to him? How did the blood of Christ affect him? He's covered by the blood. Is that a good thing? That is a great thing, isn't it? What happened to him physically? And what did the Romans, they saw it. And what did the Romans who have the garment and the coverings of Christ do with the garments? Where are these garments now? Christ has shoes, sandals. What happened to the sandals? He had a tallit. He had all kinds of, he had a robe. 
Where are those now? Did they disintegrate? Did they break down into small pieces? Were they subject to decay? Who made the garments? Did he go to the garment store and buy them? He's God, remember. Or did he make them himself? If he made them himself, what did he make them out of? Where did he gather the materials? When did he make them? Here's the better question. How old are they? Has any, anyone else ever worn them besides him? Has God ever made garments before? Anywhere in the Bible? Yeah, yeah. Genesis. Obviously, God, as part of his plan, intended for the clothing, his clothing, to be handled by the Romans who thought they were dealing with just a man. As a guy, as you know, writing a book, and the big premise of his stupid book that this foolish man is writing is that Christ is just another man. No. I get angry just dealing with that. This is not just a man. And the Romans found out really quickly they're dealing with God-man, not just another man. They figured that out very fast. And what made the clothing different is clear. He says this. Let me read it for you again. Because you go over it too fast sometimes. I'll read it slow. They look at me and stare after they pierce me. And he would know that because he's omniscient God outside of time. When they pierced me, they saw something that, that was unbelievable. And then he says this, They divide my garments. And for my clothing, they cast lots. God says, that's my stuff. That's God's things. The garments of God will be divided except for one. What does that mean? Does he want his garments back? Is there any place in the Bible where somebody has God's things and he's not happy about it. And he comes to get them back. Yes, there is. So we have to find where God has his things and somebody stole them. I don't think the Romans kept them. I think after that soldier got covered with blood from the body of Christ and Living water. He says, I am living water. And it came out of him. I think that soldier went, my goodness, you can have my share. I don't want it. I don't think anybody there wanted those garments. Those are God's garments. They knew that's God and they knew they had God's stuff. Things change. Next week, we will finish all that up. Let's rise and be dismissed. But you're on your way. Solving all of it.